Well, hello, Valley Point Church. It is such an honor to be with you here today. Like Pastor Eric said, I come to you from New York City, where I am on staff as a pastor at Church of the City. And even though we're in different cities, we have some friends in common, friends who have worshiped with me in New York, who are now here, a part of your community and vice versa. And I've also gotten to know your pastor and your church from afar. And I've been so moved by the intentionality of your pastor and also by the vision of your church. And so it is a great joy to be here with you. Thank you for having me. A bit about me. I come from the West Coast. I grew up in California. But I love living in New York City. And especially now, this is like the absolute best time of the year to be on the East Coast, right? Like fall is beautiful. But aside from that, in the last year, I've actually seen things that I've never gotten to see before. In our community in New York, we've just seen this like purity of devotion for Jesus and this new level of consecration among young people and old people from our kids to our elders. Um, and it's been breathtaking. It's been so beautiful. And I, I also have some friends who live in Glen Mills, and they've been telling me about what's been happening here. And, and they've shared that since the beginning of the year, they've just sensed the tangible presence of God in their worship gatherings in a new way. And so I'm just so encouraged about what God is doing here and what God is doing in this region. And I'm so honored to just get to come and hopefully encourage whatever is already ignited here. So thank you for having me. And thank you for having me in this series for want of a nail. And today what I'm going to talk about is the role that we play in the global body of Christ and specifically the responsibility we have to the persecuted church. Our text for today is 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 13, and that reads, But Timothy has just now come to us from you, and he's brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what's lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. In all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged because of your faith. Did you know that more Christians died for their faith in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined? According to Open Doors World Watch List from 2023, 312 million Christians are currently facing extreme or very high levels of persecution. That's one in seven Christians worldwide who are persecuted because of their faith. 
And that number is one in five in Africa, and in Asia, it's two in five. Last year was actually the worst year on record for persecution with 5,621 Christians killed for reasons related to their faith. More than 2,000 churches were attacked and over 4,500 Christians were detained or imprisoned. We tend to think that persecution happened to the early church, but it was something that we left behind in the first century. And I think that's probably because we primarily tend to think about the church in the West. But according to the New York Times, the global transformation of Christianity is here. In the year 1900, about 80% of the world's Christian population lived in the Western world. But for the last 20 years, the majority of Christians actually live in places like Central and South America and South Korea and Sub-Saharan Africa. There are actually 685 million Christians in Africa today, but here's a heat map of global persecution happening in the world. Despite a growing number of Christians in Africa, there are five nations on that continent that rank higher in Christian persecution than places like Iraq, Syria, or even Saudi Arabia. One in seven Christians around the world today are facing alienation from their family and their social systems. They're facing imprisonment or even death because of their faith. And do you know how they're doing? They're doing quite well. The fastest growing evangelical movement in the world today is not happening in the southern states of America. It's happening underground in house churches, primarily led by women in Iran. Pastor X is the alias for a man who's helping steward the Iranian revival. This is a revival breaking out right now in the most unexpected place on the planet. And in an interview, he shared this story. He went with one of his team members to visit a man who was living in a remote village. And this man had no electricity, no gas, no access to Christianity or to the underground church whatsoever. But while they were visiting this man, they sat with him and he said to Pastor X, a man wearing white comes to my house every night and he tells me to write things down. And so Pastor X asked to see his notebook and he opened to the first page and on the first page it said, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. He had the whole book of John written in his notebook, delivered to him night by night, piece by piece by a man in white. This man in white, the person of Jesus, he's appeared to people all over the Middle East in dreams and visions in a way that has ignited a fire in the underground church. And it sparked a revival that some say have led to over 1 million Muslims giving their lives to Jesus. But believers in Iraq, today, or in Iran today, they face great risks. Anyone with a Muslim background who turns to Jesus risks being monitored, harassed, arrested, and charged with crimes against national security. I met a girl earlier this year who was about my age, and she grew up in the UK, but her family was from Iran, and she said that her dad used to be a part of a local house church. He was one of its leaders. But the other leaders saw potential in him and they saw a teaching gift. And so what they did was they pulled together all of their money 
and they sent him to England so that he could go to seminary to come back and pastor them. But while he was in England studying with his wife and his family, he got word from his house church back home. The other leaders had been found out. They were rounded up and they were killed. His church said, do not come home. And so what he did was he finished his seminary degree and now he leads a seminary for leaders in the underground church where they gather every year for equipping and encouragement. In his work, Apologeticus, which is from about 200 AD, the early church leader and author Tertullian, he wrote, the oftener we are mowed down by you, the more in numbers we grow. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The persecuted church is doing quite well. But according to Franz Vermin, who is the managing director of Open Doors International, after doing hours and hours of interviews with pastors who are leading in underground churches and persecuted places around the world, he concludes, the biggest threat to Christianity is that persecution brings isolation and a loss of hope. It's a decrease of resilience caused by incessant persecution and the feeling of being forsaken by the rest of the body of Christ. This is what 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 13 is all about. The context of this letter is that Paul had faced tremendous persecution. This is his second missionary journey. And in Acts 16, he gets a vision of the Macedonian man. This is a vision that leads him to Philippi, where Lydia, the first European convert to Christianity, is baptized. But this is also where he and Silas are stripped, flogged, and thrown into prison. And then they're asked formally by city officials to leave that city. And so they move on to Thessalonica, but with roughly the same results. Paul preached the gospel in the synagogue and in people's homes, and, and the hearts for some, of some Thessalonians were tender. It says that some Jews, many God-fearing Greeks, and even several prominent women turned to Jesus. But out of jealousy, a riot was started. Those opposing Paul and his companions, they shouted, these are the men who have caused trouble all over the world, and now they're here. They announced that these missionaries were defying Caesar and worshiping another king. And at this, the crowd and the city officials, they were thrown into a riot. And even those who were harboring these missionaries as fugitives were drawn into the conflict. They had to post bail for their own freedom. So the presence of Paul and Silas and the mounting opposition against them, it was just putting so much pressure on this newly formed Thessalonian church. So much so that Paul and Silas actually had to flee in the middle of the night just to take some of the heat off of these new Christians. But persecution followed Paul and persecution stayed with the Thessalonian church. And Paul was heartsick about it. He had spent what some believe to be just like a couple of weeks to maybe a couple of months with these new baby Christians before having to take off without any goodbyes and without explanation. And he heard that they had faced mounting pressure on their faith even after he left. Imagine leading somebody to Christ in a hostile environment 
and then having to flee with no warning and no further explanation about how to follow Jesus, Paul must have feared that at best, many of them had fallen away. And at worst, this church had disintegrated altogether. But the Spirit of God, he was a faithful shepherd to the Thessalonian church. And Timothy, he returned with news that the church was not only intact, it was thriving. In verse 6, it says, But Timothy has just now come to us from you, and he's brought good news about your faith and love. The news about the faith of the Thessalonians, it brought Paul so much joy that he actually spared no time in writing his response. He sat down and he penned this letter, the letter, of the Thess- the letter to the Thessalonians, and it's that letter that we're going to be anchored in. Verses 7 through 9 is what we'll study today, and they say, therefore, brothers and sisters, In all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have and the presence of our God because of you? Paul, in all of his distress and in all of his persecution, he was strengthened by one thing, the faith of the Thessalonians. Because the thing is, how we live out our faith, it matters to those who are dying for theirs. Now, I don't have many fears for the Western church, but I have a few. And one of them is that in an effort to move from empty religion, to move from rituals and ceremony that didn't mean much to us personally, we have so personalized faith that we have divorced it almost entirely from the communal context in which it was designed. I fear perhaps in our desire to make faith more personal, we have so personalized and individualized faith in a way that God never actually intended. I fear perhaps we've overcorrected. In the book of 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 24 through through 26, it says, just as a body, The one has many parts, but in all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Each one of you is a part of the body of Christ. All individual parts, all connected to the head, which is Jesus, but also all connected to one another as well. A disease you're probably familiar with if you've read the New Testament is leprosy. And leprosy is dangerous because what it does is it can cause nerve damage in your hands and your feet. And what often happens to people with leprosy is eventually they'll start losing fingers or toes because they bump and bruise them again and again without experiencing pain. So leprosy, it's not just a skin disease, it's a neurological disease. It causes numbness, and because of that numbness, you lose control in your body, you lose parts of your body, you lose power. In the same way, I fear that a malaise of numbness like a leprosy of sorts has come over the body of Christ. 
And we have lost power because we have lost feeling in the body of Christ. And we will not regain power if we do not regain feeling. Like we cannot sit back and wonder why the Western church is not potent when our brothers and sisters in the global south and in the east are in chains and we don't ache for them. Like we will not have power in the West as a church. We will not see Christianity in a form of potency if we do not regain feeling in the body. The New Living Translation of Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. Remember them like you're with them. Feel their pain like it's in your body. But this is more than just being moved by the suffering of the persecuted church. It's not only about joining them in their pain, it's about joining them in their faith. The Thessalonian church, they had faced some pressure, some persecution, but Paul had faced more. In his account to the Corinthians, Paul recorded that he had been in prison frequently. He had been flogged, lashed, beaten with rods. He had been shipwrecked and lost at sea. He had been on the run in cities and in the country. He had gone without food, without sleep, without clothing. This is one of our Christian heroes of the faith. He raised the dead. He led the lost to Jesus. He planted churches everywhere he went. He had gained much ground for the gospel, and yet he had also suffered much for it. And so Paul, he wrote this letter to a church that had not faced yet what he was facing, but he said that this church had strengthened him, had given him courage. It says in the midst of distress and persecution, in the midst of riots, flogging, and danger, Paul had been given three things because he heard of their faith. And those three things were encouragement, true life, joy in the presence of God. How we stand firm in our faith matters to those who are laying their lives down for theirs. We owe the persecuted church beautiful and compelling lives of faith. We ought not to mishandle a gospel that others are imprisoned or dying for. The greatest threat to the persecuted church does not come from theocracies or dictatorships. It's a loss of hope by feeling forgotten by the rest of the body of Christ. But as we stand firm in our faith, what we can do is we can give the persecuted church encouragement, true life, joy in the presence of God. This is what Paul was filled with when he heard about the faith of the Thessalonians. This is a man who would later go on to die for his faith, but their faith gave him enough strength to keep going. I have some friends who quit their jobs in America. One was an accountant, one worked in politics, and they moved to the Middle East to be missionaries there. And since they've been there only a couple of years, they've already led 100 people from a nomadic community to Christ. It's been so beautiful. But one of the things they're actually best at is discipling Muslim background believers once they come to Christ. So these are Muslims who they have led to Jesus, who have given their lives to him, and then many of them actually join their team and begin sharing the gospel in their own communities. 
and they have one Muslim background believer that they were telling me about this time last year, and we'll just call him Ali for the sake of his own security. But Ali came to Jesus only a couple of years ago and then immediately started joining my friends on house visits, sharing the gospel with other Muslims. And he even began financially supporting another Arab missionary. But unfortunately, when he did, that got flagged with the government. And in Jordan, it is not illegal to be Christian. It is just not legal to become Christian. And so the secret police arrested him and they threw him in a prison cell where they interrogated him for weeks on end without a cell phone, no contact to the outside world. Until one day, unexpectedly, without explanation, they released him. He was free. But as soon as he got home, all of his uncles were waiting for him outside. And they threw him into the basement of the house where he was kept in isolation. Again, no access to the outside world. And he shared that there were several times during those weeks of isolation that he considered ending his own life. But what actually pulled him out of the darkness is he would recite out loud whole passages of the book of Matthew that he had memorized by heart. And eventually, he was able to speak to his mother. And she told him that even though they had considered it, they decided not to kill him. But all she wanted was for her family to be restored and for them to go to the mosque together again. And he said he could do that. And so they did not let him out of the house apart from mosque visits, but he was able to live above ground again in his own bedroom where he kept his Bible. Now, my missionary friends had bought him a Bible that on the cover looked like a Quran, but inside was the words of the Old and New Testament. And he would bring that Bible to mosque where all Muslims all around him were facing Mecca and worshiping Allah. He would be sitting in the back reading the words and the teachings of Jesus. But eventually, unfortunately, he was caught. And in a final act, trying to get him to renounce his faith, his family sent him to what was essentially a labor camp for the better part of a year. And at the end of that year, he returned home after the imprisonment, after the basement, after the labor camp, and his family gave him his phone back. And for the first time in over 12 months, he opened it. And the first thing he did was he called my missionary friends and he said, let's get back to work. Let's get back to work. <laughs> Do you know what that does to me? <laughs> like that completely blows up my categories for Christian discipleship. Like this actually reorients what is normative for a life with Jesus. And this ought to blow up our categories for discipleship as well. For Ali, a very regular part of discipleship was memorizing whole passages of scripture as his actual source of life. For him, a regular part of his life with Jesus was sharing the gospel often and boldly, even when it cost him something precious, even when it cost him his freedom. Because how could we be satisfied? Like reading the Bible a couple of times a week and having a few gospel conversations with some non-Christians a year, but only when it's convenient, only when it doesn't cost us too much. And I don't mean for this to sound like pressure, guilt, or shame. I know how personal, I know personally how easy it is to just lose track of things a little bit, right? To just get our priorities inverted, to be so focused on what the world cares about. 
to think more about what I'm overwhelmed by at work or how I'm going to spend my weekend than I actually spend focused on the word of God and getting it into the center of my heart as the source of my life or more focused on my own personal life than I am focused on sharing the gospel with people who are literally dead in their sin without it. I don't share this to beat you up. You're a great church. You're doing all right. (laughs) But I really share this because sometimes Christian life in the West, it can just feel like this box, right? But it's stories like this that are just a crack in the lid that make me wonder, what if there's more? Franz Verman, in his research about the state of the persecuted church, he said that after interview after interview with persecuted Christian, he found that they didn't talk often about themselves, actually almost not at all, but they often would talk about their children because there is an entire generation of the church that's growing up in persecution. And for them, this is not a temporary experience. This is Christian life as they know it. So if the greatest threat to 312 million persecuted Christians is losing faith because they're losing hope, and if an entire generation of the church is growing up in persecution under the watchful eye of their government, but they're looking to the rest of the Christian world to know whether what they're doing matters, then one of the most significant things you can do with your life is live a compelling life of faith. A life that inspires encouragement, true life, joy in the presence of God. Church history, it has this long tradition of recording Christian suffering and Christian martyrdom. Fox's Book of Martyrs was originally published in the 16th century, and it's been updated every century since then. And it's one of the best-selling books in Christian history. But... This tradition and my purpose here today is not actually to exalt suffering or martyrdom. It's to exalt Jesus. It's not to glorify death. It's to glorify Jesus. Because the message beneath all Christian suffering, the message beneath persecution is this. Isn't he worthy? Like, Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he worth it all? And it's a call and response. When we choose to actually live lives consumed by the beauty and the goodness of God, when we reject half-hearted devotion or faith that costs us nothing or a spirituality that you can compartmentalize into some parts of your life but not all, but when we reorient our lives around the person and the purposes of God, what we do is we echo back to those who are suffering for their faith, he is. He is worthy. So church, let's get back to work. You might never have to defend your faith to the death, but will you stand firm in how you practice it in life? Will you stand firm in your sex ethic and how you use your money and how you treat the poor and how you share the gospel with those who have not yet received it and how you show up in your community? Will you practice worship and devotion in life that others are demonstrating in death? The question is no longer, is it required? That's an old covenant question. The question is now, isn't he worthy? And those who have died for their faith, 
They didn't just dig their heels in on an idea. They didn't just grit their teeth and die for an opinion. They died as a final act of faithfulness to the God they loved. There's actually many accounts of a divine presence visiting those who were soon to be martyred with increasing glory as their death approached. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, moments before he was stoned to death, he presented the truth of the gospel. And then in Acts 7, it says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I've seen heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen got a standing ovation from Jesus, standing at the right hand of the Father, and Stephen died absolutely caught up in the glory and the beauty of God. Isn't he worthy? Persecuted Christians ought to inspire us to live lives of devotion. And as we live lives of devotion, we inspire persecuted Christians to keep going. We echo, it's worth it, he's worthy. So now, Valley Point Church, here's the Apostle Paul, one of the most persecuted men in Christian history, and yet one of the most influential. And he's praying a prayer for a church that inspired him, a church that was known for its work produced by faith, its labor prompted by love, its endurance inspired by hope. This church was not unlike your church, a church that was known for its love of God and love of people. And yet Paul says he can't wait to visit them to supply what's lacking in their faith. And what he was not able to be in person to teach them he prays over them instead. And that prayer is in 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13. It says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. So Paul prayed first that he would be united with the Thessalonians, and then he prayed two things, that their love would increase and that their hearts would be strengthened for holiness. So Paul prayed that their love would increase for each other and for everyone else. So what this means is it would begin with Christian fellowship, but it would end with enemy love. The Thessalonians, they had already begun to face some persecution, but it was only going to get worse. And what seems like a throwaway tag onto a statement and everyone else, what that did was it blew open the scope of love, like far beyond the walls of comfort. It included oppressed and oppressor. It included those who were praying for them and those who were persecuting them. The words used by Paul in this prayer in the Greek for increase and overflow their synonyms. And the first means not just growth, but abundance. And the second means wealth or excess. And so Paul prayed that the church would have too much love, like more love than they knew what to do with, that it would be overgrown and abounding, that it would cover their community of faith and it would spill over into the hands of people that they met on the city streets and even onto those who hated them. Why? Because that's what their God did. 
Romans 5, 7 says, Christ died for us, when? While we were his enemies. At the cross, Jesus forgave those who were crucifying him, even while the crucifixion was still in process. Before their act of violence was over, they were already forgiven. Corey Tembum was a Christian who was caught during World War II hiding Jewish people in her home during the Holocaust, and she can tell her story of forgiveness better than I can. And so here's a part of her story from the Alpha film series. Check out this video. One of my great heroes is Corrie ten Boom. She's a Dutch Christian who hid Jews during the war. She was caught, and Corrie and her sister and her father went to Ravensbrück concentration camp. Her father and her sister, Betsy, died there. She's an amazing woman, and after the war, she went and spoke to others about forgiveness. She was speaking in a church in Germany one time, and at the end of her talk, she recognized the man coming up to her, and she could see it was one of the most cruel guards from Ravensbrück. She pictured him as he was then, and as he came up to her, he said, I was a guard at Ravensbrück. He didn't recognize her, but she knew. She recognized him. She could see him. And she remembered walking naked past him. She said she felt so cold and so angry. He said, I've become a Christian now. I know I did some very cruel things, but I've received God's forgiveness for the cruelties I've done. And I asked God's grace for an opportunity to ask one of my very victims for forgiveness. Fraulein Ten Boom, Want you were forgiven. forgiven. Will you forgive me? And I could not. I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him. But I was not able. I could not. I could only hate him. And then I said, thank you, Jesus, that you have brought into my heart God's love through the Holy Spirit who is given to me. And thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment, I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hand. And I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. Can you forgive? No. I can't either. But he can. Can you forgive? <laughs> no. But he can. Paul prayed that their love would increase and overflow so that it extended even to their enemies. Forgiveness is perhaps one of the most potent acts of power that a Christian can walk in. There are many supernatural gifts that Christians have access to, miracles that can happen through prayer, but forgiveness is more potent than all of them because forgiveness can change not only a single life, it can change generations. But sometimes it's hard to know if you've really forgiven someone, isn't it? There's an indicator that I found helpful. When you pray for them, can you bless them? 
when your prayer shifts from God, please change them to God, please bless them. Give them opportunity at work. Give them favor in their family. When you can pray that without a tightness in your chest, when you can ask God to treat them lovingly and actually believe it, then perhaps you have forgiven them. And if not, you can ask God for his forgiveness for them. Paul prayed their love would increase, that their community would be marked by an abundance and overgrowing amount of it. And then he prayed that their hearts would be strengthened for holiness. The text says, may he strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God. But a better translation would actually be that you would be blameless in holiness in the presence of God. To be blameless and holiness standing before God. What a beautiful prayer. Kierkegaard says that purity of heart is to will one thing. It's to desire one thing over all other things because that's what love requires. It's interesting, right? Like in our culture, we value more. Americans are known for more. Like our grocery stores have more options than any grocery stores anywhere else in the world. Our portions in restaurants are two to three times bigger than that of Europe or other places in the world. We value more, more money, more opportunities, more hobbies, more influence. To us, it seems that it's the strong who can will many things at once to keep all the plates spinning, holding them in balance while living this big life. But according to Kierkegaard and according to Paul, it's the strong who actually have the discipline and the fortitude to will just one thing at the center of all other things. But when it comes to this, people tend to make one of two mistakes. Some people think that this just means to put Jesus first. But Jesus does not just want to be your first priority in a list of growing priorities, a box that you check off in the morning and then move down your list and move on with your day. But others think it's to erase everything and everyone for the sake of God, that Jesus is the only priority, nothing else matters. But Jesus does not want you to forsake your family, your career, your interests, your purpose, and your calling in the world. The Bible's full of wisdom for how to honor God in these things. So it must be honoring to God to have these things in your life. Jesus does not want you to retreat from the world. Jesus says you're the light of the world. When you leave the room, the room goes dark. The third way is not an erasure of all other priorities or just to make Jesus first in the list of growing priorities, but it's to put Jesus at the center of every priority you have, at the center of your family, your career, your friendships, your marriage, your sexuality, your finances, how you use your time. If I can be so bold as to edit Kierkegaard, which is bold, I would add that purity of heart is to will one thing at the center of all other things. It's to have the strength to keep that one thing as the gravitational force that holds everything else together. It's not to forsake your career, but it's to ask the question, is Jesus at the center of your career? It's not to deny that you have a sexuality, but it begs the question, is Jesus at the center of your sexuality? 
It's not to empty your life for God, but it's to consecrate every area of your life unto God. Paul prayed that the Thessalonian church would have hearts that were strong enough for holiness, strong enough to will one thing at the center of all other things. And the beautiful promise attached to this from Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount is that the pure in heart are blessed because they will see God. Some of you might remember one of the most striking images released to the world in 2015 when ISIS was on the rise was of the Coptic 21. Now it's a painful image, so it's not one that I'm gonna share with you today, but here's an artist's rendering of the orange jumpsuits that the men wore that day. 21 men were kidnapped, rounded up, and beheaded for their Christian faith. And ISIS recorded their murder and released it in hopes of sending shocks down the spines of a watching world, announcing their power, their dominance. But it backfired because the world was captured, not by ISIS, but by these 21 men with the clarity of conviction that they had as they faced their own execution that proved who really was filled with power in that situation. And these 21 men, these were not theologians or pastors or missionaries, they were day laborers. These were men whose days were filled with hard work. Their concern was probably for their family and just making ends meet. If we were sitting in their church, they would not be standing where I am. They'd be sitting somewhere in the room maybe where you are. And yet, with their hearts strengthened and Jesus set at the absolute center of their lives, they used some of their last words to sing a line from a hymn, a hymn called Ya Rabbi Yasu, which translates my Lord Jesus. And that moment, it told us something about these men. It told us that they had seen God that beneath everything, Jesus was at the absolute center of their lives. So may you, like them, be strengthened for holiness, to hold Jesus at the gravitational center of your life so that you might see God and be blameless in his presence. The persecuted church is sitting on the edge of its seat waiting to hear about the news of your faith. And Jesus is watching over his body to see how it's doing. And the last few years have been a testing of the Western church. It's exposed some of our weaknesses, that perhaps we were a little overfed and perhaps we had let some of our muscles atrophy. Perhaps we had relied too much on our, Christ, our persecuted brothers and sisters to carry the weight of the gospel because our arms felt weak. Perhaps now it's time to rise with strength in our hearts and an increase in our love and to join our persecuted brothers and sisters in lives of devotion and faithfulness to Jesus that he rightfully deserves. Perhaps, church, it's time to get back to work. The question is no longer, is it required? The question is, isn't he worthy? And will our lives echo that he is? Jesus, 
although he died for the truth claims of what is now called Christianity, he's not often considered the first Christian martyr. And perhaps that's because he died not just for his faith, but for yours. He died so that you might have faith. Christians enduring persecution, they're just like small mirrors pointing back to heaven. Because the act of suffering for the one you love, it was not initiated by the church, it was initiated by Christ. Christ died so that we might have faith, be filled with the Spirit, and be able to be strengthened in love and be blameless before God. And the most beautiful thing about this invitation to live a compelling life of faith is it does not depend on you. This is not based on your strength, your grit, your discipline, your perseverance. This is based on the worthiness of Jesus. The scripture says all you need for a life of godliness comes from God. So receive his power fresh today. So I'm gonna invite you now into a time of response. And this is a time that we're just going to hold so that you don't hear these testimonies and hear the gospel and then walk out of here without an opportunity to respond to God. So I hope you respond to God. He's here. He's listening. I believe the invitation today is to step into a new level of consecration. And consecrated things are just things devoted to God. And Exodus 29 says that when you consecrate the altar and make it holy, everything it touches becomes holy. And I think sometimes we think about holiness like it's fragile and easily defiled. But the scripture says that consecrated things are potent, that they are not only holy, but everything they touch becomes holy. Consecrated life is potent, it is powerful. It's an integrated life where your worship touches every part of you. It touches your work, your finances, your family, your play. All of these become opportunities for devotion and opportunities for the kingdom to break in. We may not face what the persecuted church is facing, but we have an invitation to see Jesus how they see Jesus. You may never have to face death for your faith, but will you stand firm in your life? The persecuted church is calling out, isn't he worthy? Will you respond with a consecrated life saying he is? So I'm gonna lead you now into a time of prayer. If you feel comfortable, I'm gonna invite you to get into a posture of prayer. Maybe for you, that just means closing your eyes. Maybe you wanna put your hands out in front of you in a receiving posture. Maybe you feel invited by the spirit to, to kneel onto the ground. I invite you now to just get into a posture of prayer. Maybe today you wanna to devote more of your life to God. Maybe for you, it's your finances, how you spend your money. Maybe you wanna to determine to increase in generosity. Or maybe it's your job. Maybe you are reminded right now of how many opportunities to share the gospel that you have left on the table, but you actually want to step into a fresh vision for your career, a fresh vision for your workplace, and you want to step out like Ali. 
and be more bold, risk more for the gospel. Maybe for you, it's actually just an increased devotion for God. That you want your spiritual life to not be filled with practices or routine, but a genuine love for God. And you're asking God to right now increase your devotion. Or maybe you want to dedicate your life to God for the first time in a real way. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray over you. And I'm going to leave you some time to just respond to God in prayer, to listen to his voice. Listen to what he's speaking over you. Respond with what's in your heart. So Holy Spirit, 